Well, we have half the class, so I guess we can start. <laughs> um, article review due this week. Artic sample articles are up on D2L. You can use those or you can choose your own, but those are just examples of what the kind of thing that I'm looking for. iTunes quiz, the pictures of the day is up and that is available through next Monday. I put it up for the full week for you so you can get it any time in there. You can take that. And that does cover just pictures through last Friday. Nothing new will be added to it. It's fixed as it is and then the next one will start on the 15th for the 15th of September. Homework three, which I forgot last time, but I did bring this time. Get off easy this time. It's only five questions instead of ten, which it usually is. So I think I, w I think I originally done that. I think I, I we were getting too far ahead, so I kind of wanted to slow it back. So I'm not having you do homework questions on stuff that I haven't quite gotten to yet. So this way this will all be planets. So by the time this is due we'll easily be through that. But we may not have gotten through all of the sun which would be the next section. So only five questions. Still the same number of points. So it's still going to be 15 points. So each is worth a little bit more. But that will be the... Make it a little bit easier for you this, this time. Number four we'll go back to ten questions. But that will cover the sun and the stars which will be the next two chapters. And quiz three will be available next weekend, not this coming weekend, but the following weekend. And I have scheduled the second exam for right now is scheduled for the 3rd of October, which is a Wednesday. So I'm not going to try to do it on the Friday again. That did not work out too well for this class. So I'm going to do it on a Wednesday. That way we have the Friday. We can do lecture and lab as normal. So we'll schedule that as right now it will be chapters well, part of chapter two that we didn't finish was just a little bit there on spectroscopy and the Doppler shift. Chapter three, chapters four through eight is one unit, which we're covering now, and chapter nine on the sun. And that'll be chapter, I think, on October 3rd and kind of leads us right into the break the following, following week, I think it is. If I have the dates right. Is October 3rd right? Is, it's a Wednesday, okay. Yeah, because the 8th, I'm, I've just been thinking the wrong dates because the 8th and 9th is the break. So we don't have class on the 8th. Yay! But, so I can't schedule an exam then. Alright, so that's what's, that's what's coming up over the next couple of weeks. Any questions? No? Alright, picture of the day for today is leaving Vesta. So it's actually a picture of an asteroid here. Who else did I? Came in later to here. Anybody else I missed with the homework assignment? I get everyone now? Okay. Uh, leaving Vesta. Vesta is an asteroid, and for the last year, it was actually an asteroid that had a satellite, an artificial satellite, that was sent there. The Dawn spacecraft has been orbiting this, left last, about a week ago, and had been orbiting it for a year, taking images and studying this asteroid. So trying to give us a little bit better knowledge, a little bit better understanding of some of the little pieces of the solar system. We've always looked at the, we've looked at the planets, you know, we've studied Mars in a lot of detail, we've studied Venus, we've studied Jupiter, Saturn, we've sent probes out to all of them. But we hadn't done a lot until relatively recently with the asteroids and the comets, the smaller pieces of the solar system. And they're very interesting in that they may, and that they are likely parts of you know, what the Earth looked like a long time ago. 
a whole bunch of these colliding together, you know, slowly building up. Could have been pieces like this that actually built up the Earth four and a half, five billion years ago when the solar system was forming. So we may be getting a better understanding of what the early solar system was like. You know, the Earth has now changed. All that material that went into making the Earth has all been changed. It's been melted and reprocessed many times over. So when we look at some of these asteroids, when we look at the comets, we're sort of seeing what the material was actually like perhaps that long ago. Now, Vesta is not just disappearing off. It is heading to another asteroid. It's actually going to go to Ceres, which is the largest of the asteroids. And it will arrive there in about three years, if everything goes well. So it's about a three-year journey through the asteroid belt from one asteroid to the other. And we'll then explore that one, go into orbit there, and study that one, that asteroid, for a while. So we'll get images of a couple of different asteroids. Doesn't look all that fascinating, right? Big rock with a bunch of craters on it, right? But we've got to see the moon. But we are learning by studying and getting much more detail. We're learning about some th how things possibly went on very early in the solar system and perhaps lead us to a better understanding of the Earth. So maybe it'll help us better understand us in the long run. But you see some interesting features. There's a large mountain down here. Now mind, keep in mind this is an asteroid. This is something, in fact, I'm trying to remember the size. How is it? Vesta is about 500 kilometers across. It's about 300 miles. Not all that big, you know, you could fit it across the state of Pennsylvania, right? So it's not, it's not a big thing. This mountain is twice the height of Mount Everest. So in that little bit, okay, Pennsylvania is still big, but, you know, nothing compared to the Earth. It, it has this incredible mountain because its gravity is so much lower. So it can actually, these objects that are much smaller actually build a lot higher mountains. So even though this thing is the size of a state, it actually can have mountains on it that are the size, that are bigger than anything we have on the Earth. We'll see that on, you can see that on Mars when we talk about Mars in a little bit. Probably on Friday, I don't think I'll get through Mars today. But when we talk about Mars, Mars has volcanoes on it that are much larger than anything else we have on Earth. And again, it's because its gravity is so much lower that it can distort the shape. It's much easier to distort the shape. So the Dawn spacecraft, again, is heading off towards Ceres. It takes it about a, th a three-year journey to get there, and it's scheduled to arrive. It didn't say when in 2015. It just says it'll reach Ceres. And if, if everything goes as planned, of course, although we've had pretty good luck with some of these, it will get there in 2015, and then we'll start sending us some images of that. Go. Questions? Yeah. Is there like a really high risk that the satellite gets hit by another asteroid or a smaller asteroid? Most, we, we know where most of the good sized ones are. So it could be orbited around that. Of course, there's always small pieces there. I mean, something you know, this size could do a lot of damage, and there's no way you're going to track them. So there is always that possibility. And there's a lot more particles out there than there are closer to Earth. So it certainly is a possibility that you know, it doesn't take much. You know, something of this size could knock, knock the antenna and damage it, and it would be, you know, communications would be gone. So that's why it kind of says, if all goes well on this journey through the asteroid belt, we'll be able to see some images of Ceres. But we had good luck with the Mars rover landing, which was a, a fun one, too. So other questions? OK. Me. We'll go back and start talking, go back to the planets and to the solar system in our little rush through here. Our little rush through the solar system for this class. Um, let me see, what did I want to, oh, let me do this first. Let me go ahead and 
You've already seen. I'm going to go ahead and do. I've got one video. This is a, this is the telescope. This is the telescope video on the Hubble Space Telescope. It's about a three-minute newscast from the launch the night before, and I do show this. I like to show this one. It's the one that I, I'm in there. I've got like two seconds worth at the end, so with my class at the time at at Michigan. So I thought I'd go ahead and show you that one first, and then we'll go in and work on the planets since this sort of ties into what we were doing last time. I did want to show you that. I did want to show. I want to show that since we just finished up talking about telescopes. So, questions? We're still learning most of the stuff that they said there. We're still trying to figure out a lot of things. We've, Hubble has given us a lot of information, has taught us a lot, and there's still a lot more to go. It is on its final run now. We don't know how long it will last. It's no longer serviceable because we don't have a shuttle to get up there. So there's no way if something goes wrong with it now, there's not much they can do about it. So there's no way to actually get up to the space telescope if something were to go wrong. There is a um, replacement that is planned to be much larger and better. I mean, technology has changed drastically since 1990 and earlier when this was built. So there is one that is planned, but whether funding will eventually go through for it or not, there is one that the James Webb Telescope is planned, but whether that will ever come through or not is a good question. So for right now, we have Hubble for as long as it works. You said it's it's 15-year lifespan, and we're at 22 years and running right now. So we've already gone well beyond what we would expect, what we expected it to, or what we hoped it to. All right. So let's see. We were looking at comets last time, as I recall. And again, this is going to this unit is going to breeze through the planets. So we're going to go through, you're going to see go chapter 4, go chapter 5, go chapter 6. They're all in here. The sections that I'm covering are the ones that I feel are important. So again, don't feel like you have to go and sit there this week, read chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. You can if you want to. There's a lot of interesting stuff there, but you, there's no reason you need, to, you need to do that. But in when comets, we were looking at the tails. So I was sort of explaining the two tails at the end of class on Monday. The comet as it forms, way out in space, it's got a big ball of ice. When it comes in close to the sun, it heats up part of it, the outer layers, causes them to evaporate, and gives it um, a coma around it. So material is now around the head of that comet as it moves. Little tiny particles, gas and dust. And some of that is pushed back by the sun. So the sun actually is pushing that material. The radiation pressure from the sun pushes that material away from the head of the comet and leaves a tail stretching behind it. And you'll always see that tail opposite to the direction, pushing opposite the direction of the sun in the sky. So as it forms here, you form the particle, you form the, we call the ion tail first. Ion tail is particle, as is, is ions are like atoms, protons, electrons and particles like that, small atoms. And that's always pushed straight directly away from the sun. That's this nice long straight one that's always going directly away from the sun. When you get a little bit closer, you start to get more dust particles being pushed off the surface. And you get a dust tail. So you'll actually have two tails to the comet, one going straight away and one that curves a little bit behind in its orbit. So it's kind of lagging behind. These are the heavier dust particles that are left behind in the orbit. So the interesting coming out, again, you get two tails. You also get the fact that the comet, as it leaves the sun, leaves the vicinity of the sun, the tail goes away first. So the tail comes in last. It's always pushing away from the sun. But when it's leaving, the tail leads the comet out of the inner solar system and heads back out. 
Now what happens here is if you think about this, there's a lot of dust particles. There's a lot of things that are left behind when the comet comes in. So all these particles that were forming the tail and the head of the comet, some of those get left behind in its orbit. So they don't all leave with the comet when it goes. So the comet gets a little bit smaller each time, leaves that little bit of material behind, meaning that comets don't come around forever. Some comets will make, you know, 10, 20, 30 journeys around the sun and then eventually will evaporate and destroy. There'll be, eventually there'll be nothing left of the comet. But the, uh, leaving that material behind means we also can, at some point, that material gets spread out in its orbit. And as that comet perhaps breaks up here, you can leave material strewn across the orbit. If that orbit intersects the Earth's at any point, we're going to pass through that material and that will cause a meteor shower. So that's when you'll actually be able to go out. We had the Perseids last month, a little over a month ago. A nice meteor shower in early to mid-August. And you, where you can see 30, from a good dark site, 30, 40, 50 or more meteors an hour. And that is just little tiny bits of a comet that you're seeing that are striking the Earth's atmosphere and burning up and heating up to a very high temperature and burning up. They never come down to the ground. They burn up very high in the Earth's atmosphere, but they glow enough that you'll see them streaking across the sky as what we call a shooting star. And that's really a meteor, and those are related to comets. They're all little bits of material left behind by comets in its orbit, either as it passed close to the sun or as it started to break up, it's going to leave some material. And depending on how much we happen to pass through, if it's a denser area or a lighter area, we'll get more or less meteors when we pass through that. So there's several meteor showers, about one a month-ish. It just depends on when we happen to pass through those orbits. Okay, That's meteor showers. Bigger things, some things do hit the Earth. Not, not bits of comets, but bits of asteroids. So if we get a large meteor, it can actually form a crater. So if you actually get a large impact, something very big striking the Earth, you can get something like this. You can actually get craters. We saw craters on Vesta today. We've seen craters on the Moon. Well, we can get craters on the Earth too. Not near as many as we see in other places, but still a good amount. And this is actually Meteor Crater in Arizona. Pretty large. That's, there's for scale is one kilometer. So almost a mile across. So a very, very big impact. You wouldn't have wanted to been anywhere near something that could form that type of crater. It wasn't necessarily all that big of an object that hit it. When an object impacts, it will form a crater that is much bigger than it actually is. So if this is about a kilometer across, the object that hit might have been about 100 meters across. So maybe about the size of a football field. Okay, still no tiny little rock, but that's still not you know, a football field coming down and striking, you know, in the middle of Harrisburg does, does some damage. You know, you're wiping things out a kilometer across, that's going to wipe out a good chunk of a, of a city if it were to hit close. And that's not where the damage ends, of course. You know, it's not like if you're out here, I'm safe, I'm safe, right? No. You know, if you're just outside of that, guess what? You still had you know, earthquake that makes anything you get in California seem like nothing. Right? So it would actually tear down a lot of damage around that area for you know, kilometers around that would be very bad, very bad. Now we don't get a whole lot of them 
anymore at least. You know, billions of years ago there were a lot more pieces that size floating around. There are still some there. You know, it's quite possible that we could get hit again. We got hit, what, 65 million years ago with the dinosaurs? Got a large impact there that, you know, wiped out 90, well that was, that was the mild one, that was only like 70 or 80 percent of the species on the Earth. There was actually a bigger one hundreds of millions of years before that that actually wiped out 90 plus percent of the species. So we do get these large impacts. You know, they have occurred. They will likely occur again. You know, could I tell you if it occur tomorrow or you know, five million years from now? That's about the same thing to an astronomer talking about that. I mean, it's not that it doesn't matter. And one means much more to people here. But in terms of being able to calculate something like that, you know, when the next one would hit, there's really no differences to tomorrow or three million years. It's all the same little stretch of time on the Earth. But that's just an example of one crater on the Earth. Most of them get wiped out over time just because it rains, it snows, they get broken down and the craters over not over hundreds of years or thousands of years but when you're talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands or millions of years they get wiped out. It'll level them off and eventually you won't even recognize it as a crater. It will get all, fill, it will get all filled in. You also have you know, volcanic activity that can wipe out craters. Some of them get melted and the, all the information is gone. So that's one of the reasons we don't see a lot of craters on the Earth as we do see on the Moon. We also don't see any small craters. They're all good sized ones because a lot of that little stuff all gets burned up in the atmosphere. So on the Moon you can find little what they call micro, micrometeorite craters which are the little tiny dust particles. You can actually have you know, a tiny rock that has all these little all pitted from impacts over billions of years. We don't get any of that on Earth. We get to see shooting stars. Those little bits do not make it through the, through the atmosphere. All right, where did the solar system come from? Well, what we think happened is that there was some large cloud of gas and dust out in space that eventually started to contract. Why it started to contract is a good question. And that's still open as to what is going on. What actually caused it to start? Why did it start contracting? We know that once something starts to contract, gravity will take over and will kick in and will make it want to contract faster and faster. But usually when there's just a gas cloud out there, there's no reason for it to want to start contracting. Usually something, something might have happened nearby and one of the things that is considered is that perhaps, you know, Few billion, for several bill, five billion years ago, there was a supernova explosion nearby. Maybe a star blew up, sent out an immense shock wave through the galaxy, and compressed this. So it started pushing one side of this down, compressed it together enough that gravity kicked over, kicked in, and started collapsing it, and maybe formed, started forming the sun and then the planets. Once it does start, whatever caused it, it will start to shrink down. It will contract down towards most of the material contracts towards the center and it will spin faster and faster. Right? And we're familiar with that. Have you ever watched you know, an ice skater? As you, they spin around, put your arms out, and you spin slower, pull them in, and all of a sudden you start spinning a lot faster. That's exactly what's happening here. This cloud was spinning very slowly. Might have been taking millions of years to rotate once. When you contract it down, you take all that material from something that is light years across, you know, it could be light years across that, and you put it down to something the size of our solar system, much, much smaller, it's spinning very quickly. So now all of a sudden you have the sun at the center spinning once a month about. So that's what, that's what we mean by conservation of angular momentum, just means that the spin has to be conserved. So if it's spinning very slowly when it's big, as you bring it 
down to a smaller object, it has to spin faster and faster and faster, and that's what's going on. So that explains kind of the, the speed. Why is the sun spinning so much faster than the cloud that originally formed it? So we start off with some kind of nebula, something contracting, and then so we collapsed it down to a disk, got, to spin, it got the sun spinning real quick. There's the hotter regions, there's the sun starting to form deep inside here. The sun, contra- the sun contracts, forming a star. Now we'll go through that, that part in much more detail in a few weeks when we actually go through stars and formation of stars. It's actually the same thing. Here we're looking not so much at the star forming at the center. We're not worried about that right now. We'll come back there. We're looking at the, how did the planetary system formed? How do we think the planetary system formed? And what we think is that there were, little, there were some materials, whatever was left over from the sun was still out there, so everything that made up the sun is out there. Hydrogen, helium, if you recall, the sun has all of those different elements in it. So things like carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, silicon, were all in this great big cloud. Now, the temperature would have been Very hot if you were close to the sun, much cooler if you were further away. So if you were close to the sun, you would not expect to find things like ices forming, right? You would be too hot. They'd keep it, you'd start to form ices and big chunks of ice, they'd evaporate and melt and be gone. So very close to the sun, we think that the things that would have tended to form would be rocks, right? Solid object, metals, things that condense at much higher temperatures. And those were the materials that would start to condense out and form the planets close to the sun. So Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. That explains Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars as being relatively made of primarily of rocks and metals. Yeah, on Earth we have a lot of water. Not really. We have hardly any water on the Earth. It's just all concentrated on the surface. If you take it as terms of the size of the entire Earth, it's hardly any water. We have some gases in the atmosphere but not a whole lot compared to the entire mass of the Earth. Most of that is rock and metal. So that's what would have formed very close to the Sun. Further out, when you got out towards Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, ices would have been able to form. It would have been much cooler out in the, in the nebula, way out there, further away from the Sun, and you would have been able to form, again, icy materials that would have been able to combine to help form the planets. And that's why we have the outer planets tend to be composed more of ices mixtures of ices and rocks and a lot of gases on the planets further out there. So again, this would have happened over hundreds of millions of years. It would have taken a long time for this to slowly. It's not something we would have come back you know, a year or two years later and noticed any difference. You would have seen the sun would have been slowly collapsing towards the center. And over time, and you see that there's, you know, by the sketch here, a lot more particles around here, a lot more impacts, things like Vesta, sized objects were colliding together, sometimes sticking together, sometimes shattering each other apart, over time slowly building up into bigger and bigger, several bigger and bigger bodies. Then you'd have fewer left and eventually coming down to sort of the solar system that we have today as they sort of cleaned out everything that was left there. So that's why we don't have a lot. We have some. There are some particles still left there around there. That's why we have things like you know meteor crater that we looked at but not a whole lot left anymore compared to what it would have been billions of years ago. Now here's just some examples. This is the star Beta Pictoris. And what we look around it, when you look close inside here, again, this is our solar system. 
when you zoom in, there's the star. Now, of course, we blocked out the star because the star overwhelms everything else and you don't see anything. But you see this belt around it, sort of a warm area, dusty belt around it. And when you look at that in much more detail right in here, you get this very distinct belt where there is material that is condensed, looks like it's condensing and maybe in the process of forming a solar system. Now again, as I said, this takes hundreds of millions of years to really see what's forming there. You got to wait a long time. You can't come back and look at it, you know, next week, next month, next year, nothing's going to change. It's going to look essentially exactly the same. But over hundreds of millions of years, this may be, we may be seeing evidence here of, plan- of planetary formation outside the solar system. Now we do know of a number of planets that have been detected outside the solar system now. The count is, gosh, it's under a thousand still, it's like seven or eight hundred that have been discovered by a number of different methods. This is sort of showing us the formation. There's actually other ones that have been physically detected. Now we can't see them. We could detect the effects of their gravity pulling on their star. So we can measure the gravitational effects. We can measure if they happen to pass in front of their star. So if you have a star, and you have a planet passing in front of it. So there's a nice star. You're sitting there watching that. And all of a sudden, this planet passes in front of it. You can't see that. But you can see that the the star is going to get a little bit fainter for a short period of time as that planet passes in front. So if you're measuring the brightness of the star, it's going to be this bright. And then all of a sudden, you're going to get a little dip while it passes in front of the star. Just because that little tiny bit and then it might do it again a certain amount of time later. You see the same thing. And you can actually use that and determine all you need to about that planet. You can actually determine how big the planet is. You can determine how much mass it has. You can determine how fast it's orbiting. So there's a lot of information you can determine just by the little dips in the light when that planet happens to pass in front of the star. So there's a couple of ways we've been able to see this. The gravitationally, seeing the tugs, how the star seems to be moving around even though there's nothing visible that we can see around it. Now here again shows a little bit more detail on where things would have formed. The graph is showing what materials condense at different temperatures and then where the planets fit into that. So at the temperature of the Earth, you know, You'd get a lot of silicates and rocks, which were made up of a lot of metals. But you wouldn't get a lot of water ice or ammonia ice. Again, we feel like we've got so much water here. But when we look at the outer planets, there are actually, there's actually one of the moons of Jupiter, much smaller than the Earth, in fact, smaller than the Earth's moon, that has more water than the Earth. So we do have water here, but it's all confined just to our surface. It's just a little bit. So there's not a whole lot of it. Yes, some of it would have formed. And we did get, we do have some. As you get further and further out, you start to see more things that you'll see in the outer solar system, waters, ammonia, and methanes that are out further out when you get out towards the outer planets. As you get towards the inner planets, again, you get much less of that. Mercury has no water, no ammonia, not even that much rock. It's rock on the outside, but it's mostly metal inside. It's so close to the sun that it's almost completely metals inside when you get down to the inside portion of it. But that temperature, where you are in that cloud, determines what materials you're going to be made up of. So if you form what we believe, you form closer to the sun, you're going to get metallic materials. More metallics, more rocks. That's what we see in our solar system. When you form further away from the sun, you're going to get more waters and ammonias and methanes, more icy materials and less metal material. So that determines where the planets will form. 
Interestingly enough though, some of the things that we're finding in other solar systems is that ours might be unusual. We are finding solar systems where there are great big planets bigger than Jupiter that orbit their stars closer than Mercury does ours. That's difficult to explain by this, by this model. So this is what we've used. Again, problem was we're basing this on our knowledge of all our solar systems up to the time, which was one. We knew one solar system. We knew the Earth and made perfect sense for the Earth. Well, if, you're, if it's hot and you're close to the sun, that's why you'll get rocks. Is there something different? Are we going to learn a lot more by studying more and more solar systems and find out maybe other things happen? Because you obviously we've seen that you can form a planet the size of Jupiter or bigger much closer to the sun than Mercury. So why did this solar system do it and why did ours not? What else is going on there? What do we not completely understand yet? So we're still, still learning. So I'm giving you the basic idea right now, but again, subject to change like anything in science. And I mentioned again, planets outside the solar system. I talked about looking at the light when the light dims a little bit. If this planet happens to pass right in front of the star <coughs> and block it out, that's a very rare event. All, and we're finding a lot of those, which leads us to believe that planets are very common in the galaxy because you have to have everything lined up perfectly. You know, it's like an eclipse. You have to have everything lined up exactly in order for that planet to pass right in front of the star. What's it going to do most of the time in most orbits? It's going to pass above or below or nowhere near it. If it doesn't pass right in front of the star, you wouldn't see this and you wouldn't be able to detect the planet. But we're seeing a lot. We've detected hundreds of planets through this method. And if they're only, you know, one in a million, that means there's lots of planets that are there that we haven't been able to detect using this method. Now another one was the wobble in the orbit. And what we're looking at, the graphs there show the velocity. Right? Is it moving towards us or is it moving away from us a little bit? And the one in the top, a nice simple one, if you look at one star, perhaps one planet, if the planet is if the planet is pulling the star towards us, then it's going to have the star is going to be moving towards us a little bit. At the other points in its orbit, it's going to be moving away from us. So you're watching this star, and sometimes it's going away from us, sometimes it's going towards us. You can map out that pattern and figure out how big this, how big of an object you need to pull on that, to pull that much gravity. You can calculate backwards and figure out exactly how big this object has to be. So you're sort of seeing that tugging as it as the star pulls on it. The bottom one, a little more complicated, a little bit more. And you can imagine this might be the case. The top one is the nice simple case where maybe there's only one planet. Well, what would it look like in our solar system where there's multiple planets? Well, this is one in the constellation of Andromeda where you can fit this with about three planets that will work. If you have, or two planets, two in this case, two, three. One, two, three planets in red here. One very, very close to the star. One out, what, about the orbit of Earth? Goes about Earth and goes inside. And one that goes out beyond the orbit of Mars. And you can actually fit the observations of how that star is moving by three different planets tugging on it. So sometimes they all tug in the same direction and pull it very hard towards us, way up here. So they're all pulling in the same direction. Other times they're pulling in all opposite directions and it kind of evens out. But we can measure that. We can measure those shifts in the star's orbit to determine 
you know, whether there's a planet there and we can use that information, we can actually, astronomer can actually go through this type of light curve and work backwards to say, I see this. What do I need? What planets do I need? How massive do they have to be to match what I'm, the data that I'm seeing? And they can work that out. So from that light curve, they can say, okay, that means that this solar system likely consists of three planets, one this real, one super close to the sun, the star, one a little bit further out, closer to the orbit of the Earth, and one even further out. All right, as I said, we're going to zip through chapters here. I have them all put together. So Earth and Moon, I cut a lot of this chapter out, just a little bit, just to kind of go through and give you a basic idea as we lead into the other, other planets. So a couple things that I wanted to talk about it that I think are interesting and useful to have gone through are, first of all, tides. Tides are gravitational force. The moon pulls on the Earth, right? Or moon pulls on the Earth, the Earth pulls on the moon. There's a gravitational force between them. That force depends on the masses of the objects and the distances between them. How do we measure the distance between two objects? Typically for gravity, you go from center of the object to the center of the object. But when you have an object that's as big as the moon, close to the Earth, there's a force between the moon and the near side of the Earth, and there's a force between the moon and the far side of the Earth. Well, this distance is a little bit smaller than this distance, so that means the moon pulls on the near side of the Earth a little bit more. The moon pulls on the far side of the Earth a little bit less. Now, that's not enough to really distort the Earth. You've got a big solid ball of rock. It doesn't distort very easily. It can be done. But water distorts very easily. Water flows very easily. So if there's a little extra gravitational force here, water tends to pull in that area, giving you a high tide. It pulls here, it's pulling water. Think of it as pulling the water away from the Earth. The net effect over on the, you get, you get another high tide on the other side. What's going on there? The force is less, right? The force is less. But the force on the Earth is greater, so you're actually sort of pulling the Earth as a whole a little bit further away from the water. So you get two bulges on opposite sides of the Earth. So those would be your high tides. So you get a high tide now, you get a high tide 12 hours from now. Right in between, you get a low tide. As you're rotating around here, you get a low tide. And all that is, again, is the force, the gravitational force of the moon pulling on the Earth. Pulls the near side a little bit more. The water is what can actually move. The water is the part of the Earth that actually flows very easily. So you're going to get a high tide here. Again, greatly distorted. A low tide here. High tide, low tide. So the tides will change about every six hours. If you've got a high tide right now at what, a little after 9.30, six hours from now, you're going to have a low tide. Six hours after that, about, you'd have another high tide. Now what these tides do is they actually are doing a couple things. They're slowing down the Earth because the Earth is rotating very quickly. The moon goes around the Earth once every 27 days. The Earth is spinning once a day, right? Every 23 hours and 56 minutes. That means the moon pulls this water ahead towards it, but the Earth is spinning so quickly that, that the Earth spins that water away from the moon meaning that there's a gravitational force kind of tugging backwards on the Earth. The moon's saying, no, I want the water, so I'm slow slowing down. So the Earth is constantly slowing down because of the moon's pull on that tidal bulge. 
The moon's pulling on it, it's pulling it backwards, opposite the direction it wants to rotate, and is slowing it down. So the day is 23 hours and 56 minutes now. It slowly is getting longer and longer. Is it going to get much longer in your lifetime? No. Changing by you know, fractions of a second, every, tiny fractions of a second every year. But when you add up that tiny fraction of a second over thousands of years, and millions of years, and billions of years, eventually it adds up to real time, right? You know, it's not, now it's actually a real amount of time. It's actually slowing it down. And instead of taking one day, it'll be two days, or three days, or four days for the Earth to make one rotation. And that will happen until it actually locks up with the moon again. So until once the Earth rotates every 27.3 days or so, depending on how the moon has changed in the meantime, once the Earth rotates every 27.3 days, then this bulge will point right to the moon, and the moon will be orbiting just as fast as the Earth spins. Meaning that there won't be, you won't have this extra force. You won't be fooling on this because it'll never get pulled ahead because the Earth won't be spinning faster anymore. Essentially, you will then have the moon in what we call a geosynchronous orbit. I could put the communication satellites in now. Well, the moon would be in a geosynchronous orbit, so the moon will always be overhead. Or it'll never be overhead. Depends on where you are on the Earth and where this happens to stop, you know, billions of years from now. So if it stops and the moon's up over Harrisburg, you'll see the moon forever. If it stops and the moon's up over China, you'll never see, as far as you're concerned, the moon doesn't exist. You'll never see it. It will never rise. It will never set. It'll be in a perfect orbit. It'll stay just like your satellite dish. You know, you point a satellite up there, it stays in the same spot. The moon would do the same thing. It would always be in the same spot wherever it happened to be. Sort of the way the Earth is for the moon right now. If you're on the moon, you either see the Earth. If you're on the near side of it, if you're on the far side, you never see the Earth. So if you lived on the far side of the moon, you'd have no clue that the Earth even existed. You could, you'd never be able to see it, unless you made that journey around to the other side to actually go see it. So that's something that's coming. You know, not, not this year, not next year, not a million years from now. We're talking billions of years for it to slowly slow down the Earth's rotation. The moon has some different areas. It's got lava flows. If you look at it, you see, when you look at the moon, you don't see craters directly on it, but you do see kind of different smearings. You'll see that there's lighter areas and darker areas. The darker areas are the maria, or the seas. Nothing to do with water, although how they got their name was maybe they looked like a little bit like seas. Maybe that was the water on the moon to a person many thousands of years ago. Maybe, this, maybe there is water on the moon. So maybe those were the seas. That's how they got their name for mare, mare for sea. And there's the highlands, the areas where there's a lot more craters, mountains. So there's two very distinct types of terrain. Lava flows, so volcanic activity on the moon. Not anymore. We're talking all this, all this stuff on the moon happened many billions of years ago. The moon has essentially been unchanged for three, three and a half billion years. So the first billion years it was active, since then it's really done nothing, while the Earth has done a lot more. How do we form a crater? Again, we looked at the meteor crater in Arizona. Here's another example on the moon, just kind of giving an idea of how this object strikes. It comes in at extremely high speeds, and that's the key. If you're just hitting the moon, you're hitting it, you're not going to do it. You're not going to make a very big crater. But the reason they make such a bigger crater is that they're coming in at an um, at extremely high speeds, smashing and then essentially causing an explosion. So 
It comes in, impacts, causes a great explosion, throws material out at very high speeds, throwing them out over the surface, and then leaving a crater behind about ten times bigger than the original meteor that hit it, probably about twice as deep. Completely smashes up this crust that was there, so crushes it up, melts it, and then ejects some material out from below. Material that was below is now thrown off, and then the crater is the remnant, is what's left behind after this massive explosion. So again, it's one of these meteorites, the same types of things that would strike the Earth. The thing is with the moon, you get a lot of the little ones can actually strike the moon. Bigger ones will never actually reach it. Or, sorry, little ones actually strike the moon. The little one, bigger ones will hit it too. The little ones will not strike the Earth because the Earth is, has an atmosphere around it. And then just give you the numbers that I gave here. Craters are typically about ten times as wide as the meteoroid hitting them. So if you get something, if you get a meteoroid a kilometer across, that means you got a ten kilometer or six mile crater. So it's really intense. It's really going to smash up that part of the surface wherever it's hitting it, whether it's the Earth, whether it's the Moon, whether it's any of the other objects. The, it'll be about twice as deep. So again, a kilometer wide meteor is going to form something that's about two kilometers deep. Although below that, the rock is even smashed well below. So not just, it's not just two kilometers deep, but the rock has been smashed far below that. Most of the craters we see on the moon are three, four billion years old. There's a few that have occurred since then, not a whole lot. Most of what we see is from the very, very early stage of the solar system. As we looked at in the formation, you know, what was, where all these, all these objects, all these Vesta-like objects were there and were constantly bombarding the Earth. So we were constantly getting hit, the moon was constantly getting hit by much larger objects than we get today. Now we get those little tiny specks, you know, shooting stars. Those, are not, those, don't, those don't do much damage. But occasionally they're still out there. Those big ones will hit. So, you know, there are kilometer sized things that could eventually strike the Earth. Some, in fact, I can say with certainty one of them eventually will. Might not be in our lifetime, might be a million years from now or 10 million years from now, but one of them is going to eventually cross the path of, cross the, path of the Earth and probably cause some pretty bad devastation unless we have technology by that point which we really don't have now to change it. You know, if you find about, you know, regardless of the movies, it would be very hard to go and change the orbit of an asteroid coming to Earth, especially when it's getting close. If you know where it is way far away, it's easy. Then you have to watch out. Then if your calculations were a little bit off, you could go from something that was going to miss us to something that's going to hit us. So you've got to watch when you're looking further away. So let me, where are we? Let me just do the Earth-Moon and we'll finish up here and we'll get on to the other planets on Friday. Where did the moon come from? Well, this is actually a computer model as to the formation of our moon. Our moon is unusual because it's so large compared to the planet. If you look at any other moon in, the so- in our solar system, almost any other moon, Mercury and Venus don't have any moons. Mars has two teeny tiny ones. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune have good-sized moons, but they're much bigger than the Earth. The Earth and Pluto are actually the only ones that have moons that are actually comparable in size. And maybe only a quarter of the, size, of the size of the Earth. So one explanation for that as to why the, moon, why the moon is here is so big compared to the Earth is that it was one of those collisions early on. Something the size of Mars maybe struck the Earth glancing. 
Again, this is long before the Earth was still molten at the time. This was four billion, four, four and a half billion years ago, very early in the stage of the solar system. And they collided together, threw a lot of material into orbit around the Earth, which eventually condensed under the model that you could condense it and form the Moon. It explains a couple of things. It explains why the Earth is denser than it should be. The Earth has more, a bigger metal core than it should have based on where it is in the solar system. So the Earth got the combined metal cores of these two planets. The metal that struck from the other one got condensed into the Earth and gave us a bigger core. It explains why the Moon has almost no metals. The Moon is very metal deficient, has very little in terms of metal. And that explains that because most of the metal from this original object got sucked into the Earth and very little of it was left out to form the Moon. So the Moon is a lot less dense than it should be based on where it is in the solar system. The Earth is a lot more dense. So this sort of explanation, although we don't normally like it, what we call a catastrophic theory, something that doesn't happen very often, that takes you know, a big impact like this to do it, it explains a lot of things that we see in terms of the compositions of the Earth, the compositions of the Moon, and why we have on Earth the one large moon in the solar system around a relatively small planet. And uh, we'll finish that up. I didn't quite get it finished. I'll finish up the Earth and the moon on Friday and then we'll get on and get through the terrestrial planets and try to finish this, finish up getting through the planets as much as I can on Friday. So, questions? I do have all your labs and homeworks. I didn't bother to bring them this time. I'm going to give them back during lab period tomorrow since that won't take up the class time to give them back. But I do have them all. Grades are up on D2L. And if you did not get a homework, I did give out homework three if you came in later.